foggy-headed one. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Craig. Hey, Craig. How you doing? Pretty good. <sighs> How's it going with you? I saw that you went to the Kubrick exhibit. That was fucking awesome. Was it? Was it worth everything? Did it live up to what it was, you know? Yeah, you know, I didn't expect a lot from it for some reason. Just because you figure a museum exhibit is going to be kind of dry and dull, but it was just really cool. Yeah. Big thumbs up from me. Is it like a lot of artifacts from films? Uh, Props from movies, like scripts with his writing in it, a ton of his lenses that he used, including the the one that he used to capture the the candlelight in... um, Barry Lyndon, they had a whole room just of his research for Napoleon, which was obviously never made. Um, He had this huge um, filing cabinet filled with index cards that was all related to his research on Napoleon that he he did for like three or four years before he decided it was not budgetable. But, um, yeah, it was was good. I've got that Napoleon book. It's like the size of of like a Mini Cooper. You could almost like if it had wheels, you could ride around on it. It's so wow. big that book, that Napoleon book. And I've got this the scaled down version, the the deluxe version. You know, sold for like five thousand dollars or something, hmm. and then they reissued it in a in a more affordable version for people who you know couldn't because it was a limited edition of like a thousand copies or something. But it was very elaborate deluxe, you know, thing of all his research and everything. Wow. How much was the stripped down version? I think I picked it up for like 45 because I got it on eBay and it was still in shrink wrap and everything so it was a really wow. good bargain but I think That's originally funny. when it first went on sale it was it was over 100 and um, is it mostly pictures or what what all is in it um, it had the, the the original book was like a was a kind of a stunt kind of thing. It was like a little bit gimmicky because it was books within books within books. It was like a, China, a Russian doll kind of thing. You'd open up the book and there were books inside of books. So it had the screenplay and it had all kinds of research and it had lots and lots of photographs. And this this edition that I have has some has a, has uh, you can have has digital access to an online collection of seven thousand photographs that he collected wow. uh, about the era. You know. About, uh, to for sets and costume ideas and stuff like that. Wow, that's incredible. Dude, it's meticulous. And I, for there was a rumor just a few months ago, right, that that they're maybe going to take a lot of that material and try to do uh, a movie uh, f- uh, four hour version for HBO or something. Yeah, I heard something about that. I, I, maybe Spielberg was involved with that. I think. Possibly. In fact, I think you're right. Yeah, he mentioned. In fact, when he. Uh, I think when he was announced as the uh, the, the head juror at Cannes, I think he said that that was going to be his next thing, that he was going to be working on a Napoleon thing. Am I wrong about that, or am I just mm-hmm. I, I think that? you're right. Yeah, that's why I heard it, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we covered it, didn't we? Didn't you write something about it, Ryan, on the... Yeah, we, yeah, we, we posted about it. Uh-huh. Oh, so that's great. Um, okay, so let's just start this mother, shall we? Um Welcome to episode 28 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com, Ryan Adams, and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. And today we're doing the famous Oscar year, 1976, which is one of the few that uh, continually pops up in Oscar conversations. You know, you can really count them on one hand, the the years that you know, really stand out, um, as anomalies, I suppose. And, you know, one is the driving Miss Daisy year. Um, and one is this 1976 Oscar year when Rocky famously beat, um, three of the greatest films of all time, which was all the president's men network and taxi driver. 
at it. It was 1976 was was a really interesting year overall at the Oscars. It wasn't just that they had these great movies at play. There were a lot of other things happening. Like Lena Wertmuller became the first woman to become nominated for director and original screenplay. And that was also the year of King Kong when Jessica Lange played um, opposite King Kong in the remake the famous remake and they even had like a king kong hand on on stage funnily enough the oscar producer was william friedkin of all people and um, he's responsible for that one of those things and and apparently it went down as one of the most boring telecasts ever um and in reading back over this year uh it's interesting to me because you really do get a sense of how the oscars exist as a moment in time and that these wins and these picks have to be judged within that context. The story of Rocky, the story of Rocky's success is so much like the story of Argo. They're so similar in a way, uh, the way that they kind of captivated the whole Oscar, uh, scene, the whole, the, the, the captured a moment in time. And, and the success story was just unbeatable for both films. The backstory, right? The backstory about the genesis of the film and the way that it came about was almost as interesting and, to me, more interesting, really, than the movie itself. Yeah. I mean, even Rocky, he wrote in a week and a half. Mm-hmm. And I think they wrote Argo in three weeks or something like that. And um, the reason that he even wrote Rocky was because his mother, who was an astrologer, told him that he would become famous or he would be most well-known for his writing. And he sat down that day and he wrote out the script for Rocky. And as we all know who lived through it, Rocky was a, was a phenomenon. It was a cultural phenomenon. It wasn't just... It wasn't just what Argo was, which was an insular success story of celebrity and Ben Affleck kind of coming into his own and reviving his career or whatever. Rocky was, wasn't was that. It was it was everybody in America, identif- a great majority of people identifying with this character, this loser makes good, you know. And it really did set set the tone, I think, for future Oscar wins up to today. Really, Rocky is where you see the change happen from, you know, kind of mature stories that didn't have much to do with... They were always an emotion... It was always an emotional thing, but this kind of feel-good, you know, reflecting the best of humanity really started then. And Rocky stands in stark contrast to the three darker films that really do show the, the, you know, I think the darker sides of our humanity network, Taxi Driver... And all the president's men. That that's about human failings. Mm-hmm. Rocky's about humans succeeding, you know, amid those failings. And one thing you've said about Argo, or we've talked about lots of times before, is about Argo is the type of movie that you can sit down, you can sit anyone down in front of it, and they'll be able to get it. They'll be able to follow it. They'll be able to enjoy it. They'll be able to feel good at the, at the end of it. And that's what Rocky was too. You can take anyone from any kind of mm-hmm. educational uh, um, background to sit them in front of Rocky, and they'll. It'll be it's it's very entertaining. It's an entertainment, right? And you can't really say that about the other nominees. Uh, you can't say that about Network or All the President's Men or Taxi Driver. In fact, Taxi Driver didn't even get a Best Pick Director nomination. It was Taxi Driver and Bound for Glory, which we, we keep leaving out, but I keep leaving out. But that's those are the two that didn't get director nominations. Mm-hmm. Um, and Taxi Driver was kind of got came in with mixed reviews. It made money, and that's why it got nominated. But it wasn't at that time seen as the kind of genius work that it's 
it's understood to be today. At that Plus, time, think how controversial it must have been. How absolutely, how it must have just blown people away. As far as as being, it was almost like a horror film, and it was so graphic. There's probably one of the most violent movies to ever be nominated for Best Picture, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, and and I think that. Um Siskel and Ebert reviewed it, and Ebert gave it a bad review. And I mean, Siskel gave it a bad review, and Ebert gave it a great review. And uh, one of Siskel's complaints about it was that it, you didn't feel anything for these characters, that it, it left you with such a dark feeling. And um, mm. I have to wonder if the way people reacted to Taxi Driver and Network didn't sort of signal the end of these kind of darker films being rewarded. Like, did it just finally spill over into, we can't take this anymore? You know, we need these stories to be happier. We need them to be, to reflect the better sides of our humanity. I don't know. I think so, and probably, too. I don't, I don't, I don't know the numbers for taxi drivers' box office and stuff, but I can't imagine that, of course, it was nowhere near Rocky's box office. And so there's a, there's a financial aspect that enters into this sort of thing. When you make intellectual, um, difficult movies like Taxi Driver and All the President's Men, you're going to, your lim- audience is going to be limited. And studios were becoming more and more conscious of the fact that movies were costing more and more, and they really wanted to recoup, not only recoup, but they wanted these big hundred million dollar paydays on the on movies mm. and they weren't getting that from movies like taxi driver and all the president's men you would get your audience and you'd make your money back but you weren't making a hundred million dollars movies like that right yeah i mean it was um kind of a miracle that it did get nominated at all and, and according to inside oscar um Nobody would really touch that movie. None of the producers even wanted to make it, and it, it was it passed through different directors' hands before it finally got to Scorsese. Uh, nobody wanted to touch Paul Schrader's screenplay because it was just too dark. And then when they brought Jodie Foster on, it added more problems because the the um, protective services of children, children child protective services, um, didn't want her to be in it at 13 years old um, doing all that stuff. And Jodie Foster and her mother both had to say, you know, uh, kids already know all about sex by the age of 10. I don't know who you think you're kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So they finally agreed to... Amazing they could get away with that. You would never be able to do that today. And it's amazing that something like Pretty Baby with uh, Brooke Shields when she was like 12 or 13 could be made when she's playing a prostitute and is practically nude in that movie too, right? Brooke Shields, I mean. And that those movies could even have been made at all. They could never do that today. I know. And I know because I lived through that era. I remember what young women and young girls thought of sex then and how different things were before you know oprah and that whole generation really changed the way we looked at young women and young girls and sex it really changed it revolutionized it actually and the mcmartin preschool and and all the child molesting cases that came out and all the stories of abuse and you know it just it really did change the way that we interpret um, there was a panic about it. I mean, especially the McMartin preschool thing was definitely a panic thing because that turned out to be that was all uh, fabricated, right? Or all it was all they they sort of coerced these kids to have these imaginary, you know, stories, right? Mm, yeah. So things changed, and now, of course, you could never do that. You're right. You couldn't do The Exorcist. Um, there's no way you would do that. There's no way you would be able to make a movie with a kid ramming a crucifix in her crotch there's just no way of saying fuck me jesus um but you know uh 
when Taxi Driver came out, see, I think one of the things about the Oscar race is interesting because if you win an Oscar and you go on to make movies like, you know, Raging Bull and Goodfellas and The Departed, you know, you've you've really shown that you you have the stuff that it's not just about the Oscar. It wasn't just a one off. So people reflect back to your early movies and they go, wow, that was incredible, you know, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a movie like Rocky, which is the reverse of that, where it's not like John Advilson or Sylvester Stallone went on to do, you know, equally great work. So I think that that diminishes Rocky's memory as well. um, When when that's the, the, there isn't a return on that promise. Right. The second highest rated uh, John Avildsen movie is the Karate Kid. I'm not kidding. That is his second highest rated movie, The Karate Kid. So that's what he went on to do after Rocky, and really nothing else that's that's of note. And it can even be, I think he made a, he might have directed Save the Tiger, which got an Oscar for Jack Lemmon. But aside from those movies, all of his movies were extremely forgettable. He's probably, I would, for, as far as I'm concerned, he's he's the worst Best Director winner of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was going to say it. I'll, you know, he's the worst, best director. Oh, my God. That's time. quite a claim. <laughs> Meanwhile, of course, Taxi Driver won Palme d'Or at, at the Cannes Film mm. Festival. Yeah. And it was an interesting year because really people's minds were split up. Like the all the president's men really took all the critics' awards. Mm-hmm. But Network came in with these strong acting performances. And, in fact, it won three. And it was the first movie since Streetcar to do that. It won Faye Dunaway and uh, Peter Finch and um, what's her name supporting uh, Beatrice Strait for a tiny part. You know, she just just really one scene where she really is her 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 Oscars her Oscar scene was the only scene she had in the whole movie, Mm. right? (laughs) The argument with uh, when she's when she breaks up with William Holden, and in fact. Sidney Lumet had hired her because she was the cousin of Gloria Vanderbilt, who, whom he'd been married to previously. That's oh, wow. how she got the part. She was really grateful for it. And, and conversely, she was up against um, Piper Laurie, who really should have won to playing the mother in Carrie. Uh, it was a great role, but apparently Piper Laurie had been lured back to... Um, to Hollywood here. I'll read you the paragraph from from this Inside Oscar book by Damien Bona and Mason Wiley. It says, To play Sissy Spacek's religious fanatic mother, De Palma lured Piper Laurie back to the screen after a 15-year absence. She had not worked since winning a Best Actress nomination for The Hustler in 1961. I wouldn't say that I had a breakdown, Laurie explained. I just had disgust. For a long time, I felt a real hostility about the things that happened to me in Hollywood. But now I look back on the person I was then with a kind of affection. I didn't know if I wanted to be a movie star or a really good actress. She enjoyed herself as Carrie, though. It was so much fun, she enthused. We all roared with laughter at the end of the day, especially the day I got it with all those knives. (laughs) It's all good for Piper Laurie, but it makes me think that she just wasn't popular enough in the industry, you know, to, to win that award. And it's really, when you look at the type of movie that Carrie was, that's another movie that you're surprised that they even had the balls to nominate in the first place because it was not only a horror film, but it was a campy from, from even then it was campy. Looking back on it, it has its camp aspects. But even at the time, it was intentionally um, uh, over the top. Yeah. And those kinds of movies are rarely uh, win, win Oscars. Can I say something about Taxi Driver? Um, 
something that I, I just found out this weekend. I never heard before, and I'm shocked that I never knew this before. But, you know, three months after Taxi Driver was released, you know, Taxi Driver came out on February 8th, 1976, and in May, three months later, there was a guy who was a, uh, a, a Vietnam vet who was an MP in Vietnam. He walked into a bar in, in Norfolk, Virginia, and he shot four people at the bar and wounded three other people and the, th the thing he said before he started shooting was I'm here to clean out the pimps and, and the drug pushers hmm. exactly like taxi driver right and then he put a gun to his head and he, and he committed suicide right there in the bar imagine what they would do with a story like that on cable news today Oh but the fact God. that that was able to happen, and that I've never even heard that story over in, in the past 35, 45 years. I'm, 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 that's never even come, never been discussed in any time that I've heard Taxi Driver discussed. It's almost like unknown. But they say that that really deeply affected Scorsese and that he, it actually affected the type of movie that he made for the next 10 or 15 years. He didn't want to make any more ultraviolet movies. And if you look at his filmography, Immediately, except for Raging Bull, which was violent, but it was an indictment of violence, Raging Bull was. But except for Raging Bull, he made two comedies. He made a musical. He made his. Uh, he made a pool-playing movie, you know, like The Hustler, the Color Money movie. Um, he, he shied away from violent movies with guns for the next 16 years. It was, not, it was between 1976 and 1990 when he went back to do Goodfellas. That was, the, that was how long he took off from making violent films after Taxi Driver. Well, of course, there was also the Jodie Foster thing with Taxi Driver, mm -hmm. the obsession with Jodie Foster, John Hinckley's obsession. Mm -hmm. That happened in, what, uh, 80 or 81? Yeah, and then mm -hmm. that also cast a pall on the film. Um, it's interesting to me that those two movies, Taxi Driver and uh, um, Network, like rough out a sketch of kind of the weird disaffected modern day male um tra there are travis bickles everywhere we just saw you know two of them blow up the marathon you know in boston <laughs> I mean, it's like mm -hmm. the, these disaffected you know kind of you know filling their head with crazy power fantasies you know tra that the, the travis bickle you know he was going to save Jodie Foster, but somehow it got tangled up with, you know, he was going to also assassinate a politician, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he would have if the Secret Service, in the movie, if the Secret Service hadn't spotted him and then he ran off. I think that was his original intention to yeah. shoot the politician who was a Candace Bergen's... Uh, but the violence in that movie and and the way way he, he, you know, sets himself up, and that's so like people today. So mm -hmm. many people, we see that in the news every day, someone like that. And, you know, the same with network could be said about network. And we're living network right now, you know, on TV and on the Internet. We watch, you know, what we're watching is like the way that Patty Chayefsky predicted it would go. And it's Both totally of those movies are so predictive. They were predictive of what would not be happening uh, uh, that year or the, in, the, in, the, in the near future. But what they predicted what would be happening 15 years down the line, which is amazing when you think about it. No, and they were so creepy and so dark, and they really didn't quite, um, you know, inspire enough enthusiasm to win Best Picture, which is what you needed to do. And Rocky had that so in the bag; it, there wasn't even a competition that year. And the funny thing is, is that so many, so much of the Oscar races is, is about the publicity, um, how it, how the project came to be, what Hollywood knew about the project, what Hollywood thinks about the success. 
Um, there's just so much backstory to it that it tends to bog down the film. And it is a miracle when 20, 30 years later, the film still resonates and it's, mm-hmm. it's just lost. It's, it's completely discarded all those dumb stories about it. And now it's just the piece of art itself. Although every movie, of course, has a, has a backstory, but the backstories of the movies that turn out to be masterpieces um, become more um, re- become more legendary over the years. Whereas the backstories for the more trivial movies, uh, you see how trivial the backstories themselves are. For instance, talking about um, St- Stallone writing Rocky, um, Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver, has his own neat or interesting little backstory about how he wrote Taxi Driver. His wife had kicked him out of the house. He was homeless. He was living in his car, and he ran across the diaries of, um, who was it who shot George Wallace? Um, Arthur Bremer. He ran across the Arthur Bremer diaries, and he wrote Taxi Driver in his car at age 26 as a way to com- as a way to prevent himself from committing suicide because mm. he was at such a low ebb in his own life. That story is not as fun as Stallone's story, of course, but it's pretty fascinating that that yeah. was the genesis of Taxi Driver, that he he wrote it in in the same amount of time in about three weeks in his car. God, you know, well, he was um, homeless. I have a uh, passage here to read about the backstory of all the president's men. If you would like me to read that, yes, yes. Okay, <laughs> Craig, <laughs> Craig, would you like to read it? <laughs> um, okay, um, Robert Redford versus Richard Nixon. Political films don't make money. Studio executives told Robert Redford when he informed them he had optioned a book by the Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein about how they unraveled the Watergate scandal. It's not a political film, Redford countered. It's a detective story. The actor told the New York Times um, the film companies were nervous about alienating their conservative constituency. But when Woodward and Bernstein's All the President's Men ruled the bestsellers list for months... Warner's forked over nine million. Redford cast himself as Woodward and found his Bernstein and Dustin Hoffman. What took you so long, Hoffman asked, when Redford had finally popped the question. Not arguing with success, uh, Redford hired William Goldman, the author of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, to adapt the book into a screenplay, and Goldman commented, Expectations are so high on this movie that if the film is only good, it won't be good enough. The Washington Post's editor, Ben Bradley, didn't think that Goldman's first draft was good enough and told Redford, just remember, pal, that you go off and ride a horse and jump jump in the sack with some good-looking woman in your next film, but I am forever an asshole. According to the L.A. Times, Redford gave the screenplay to Woodward and Bernstein for suggestions. Giving this invitation the broadest possible interpretation, Bernstein, together with his great and good friend Nora Ephron, rewrote the script, changing his character to a combination of Sherlock Holmes, Nero Wolfe, and Casanova, while Buddy Woodward emerged as a vapid, colorless Elmer Fudd worshipping at the shrine of Bernstein's brilliance. Redford rejected this version, telling Bernstein, Errol Flynn is dead. Goldman did some more rewriting. Newsweek documented the lengths Redford went to assure historical authenticity. The sum of $200,000 alone is being spent recreating at a Burbank studio the newsrooms of the Washington Post, aided by photographs taken from the film's art directors and purchase of 200 desks identical to those at the newspaper and the shipment of 270 cartons of authentic litter litter gathered from newsroom desks and wastebaskets. Ben Bradley raved, the set was just stunning. And so that's all. I heard that Brent, Ben Bradley um, uh, 
promised his daughter that she would meet, um, he would be able to introduce her to Robert Redford. So he brought her to Hollywood, and they walked on the set, and the set was so such an exact duplicate of the actual Washington Post offices that she was able to walk directly to her father's office because they, it was like an exact, you know, that's replica. great. Yeah, that yeah. is incredible. I think that's one of the things that makes that film so captivating is the newsroom itself. Mm-hmm. You can they tell can, that they invested that kind of time and detail in it because, you know, it just it just reads on screen. They combined two sound stages at Warner Brothers. They had to knock the wall out between two adjacent sound stages in order to get the floor space to extend that far in the distance. They knocked out the wall between two two sound stages so they could um, you know combine them into that space incredible that they did that and redford originally i've heard this story too about the genesis of the of the screenplay it's a little bit different from what uh, damien bona has um i was i was trying to think of where i read some of these things that i've been picking that i've been writing to you guys in emails about uh, all the president's men and so i thought i would try to listen to part of the commentary track of all the president's men to see if that's where i picked up some of this information Mm. i'm amazed at the fact that Robert Redford has spoken for 45 minutes on the commentary track and not mentioned the name of William Goldman one time. He wow. talks about Bakula. He talks about um, um, uh, Gordon Willis, the cinematographer. He talks about the set designers. He talks about David Shire, the, the composer. He mentions all of the collaborators by name, but he hasn't mentioned William Goldman. And I believe they had a falling out. Well, I believe that William Goldman turned in a screenplay that was a little bit like a buddy picture, a little bit like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I think that Goldman was aware of the fact that Warner Brothers was nervous about a movie about newspaper men, and he was going to try to turn it into a, a His Girl Friday sort of thing with a lot of banter and a lot of cutesy you know, back and forth. And everybody who read the script thought that it was too lighthearted. And so... Redford wasn't satisfied with it. They couldn't find any director who would take it. They approached Elia Kazan to direct, and he didn't want to do it because he thought they didn't take the subject seriously enough. Mm-hmm. And so they were even going to have trouble finding someone to direct it. But when Redford approached Bakula, Bakula said, it's too light, but we can take the humor out and we can dry everything down so that no, so that the people, so that the characters saying these lines are not aware that they're being clever and we'll just, it's going to be said with a straight face and really droll and dry and and let's so they hold up in I think the Madison Hotel which is right across the street from the Washington Post news offices Redford and Pakula for a month and they wrote the screen rewrote the screenplay and, uh. and eliminated all the humor um, for about a month they worked on it and, and they would go across the street and talk to uh, Woodward and Bernstein and Woodward and Bernstein uh, handed over all of their notes for the books they would call them up and they would they would say you know we know you have a problem with this scene can you tell us how it really happened and so they just and they gave them all their notes all of their uh, you know actual journalism journalism notes and everything so that's the story I heard about the screenplay meanwhile I'm about to finish sorry meanwhile William Goldman of course won the Oscar for best screenplay Right. And the the book where I'm getting this information from, Robert Redford says, and this is a direct quote, he says he's amazed that Goldman wasn't embarrassed to accept that Oscar because, <laughs> oh because so much of it was, was what he and Pakula had, had rewritten. Wow. So I'd never heard that story before. I mean, I'd read it a long time ago, but I'd forgotten about it. And then when I was trying to tra- track down where I'd heard this stuff, you know, uh, uh, I was able to piece it all together, but it's an amazing thing, really, that they, the the studio was so nervous about making a movie about uh, current events. They wanted 
they wanted a screenplay that was going to be almost like a comedy. And the people, like as you said, people at the Washington Post had had read the script and they said, "Look, we're all for you making this movie, but if you make the movie from this script, we're going to be your enemies because you make us look silly." <laughs> It's interesting so the, Holly, the studio was so hesitant because Watergate is the thing that was sort of hanging over everything for years and years and and impacted the movies in, indirectly, just the, in terms of the mood of the country and the mood of the movies that were being made. I mean, obviously, along with Vietnam and some other things, um, that, that's just that they finally make a movie about the thing that was on everybody's mind and they're afraid to do it right. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe, Sasha, you touched on the reason is because they realized that Nixon had won by a landslide in 1972. He came came into office triumphant, and a lot of people um, were going to be loyal to Nixon the same way that people were loyal to Bush, even after it was revealed that Bush was an asshole and an idiot. People were still loyal to him and still are to this day, and no studio wants to alienate half the country. Right. As an audience, right? They have to you have to be aware of the fact that there are people who voted for Nixon who are, who are going to really look at the Washington Post as the enemy. Interesting, and and so I wonder what William Goldman's screenplay was like. I mean, I'm imagining like a high pitched jazz score and these like <laughs> you know these like smooth talking reporters. I mean, what? I think it was just really like uh, like a lot of uh, witty banter. You know, and there's some of that. There's a lot of that still in the movie, but it's said with such a straight face. It's like they're not even aware that they're being funny. They're not trying to be funny, and it doesn't have the editing rhythm, and it doesn't have because it's so rooted in realism. It, you buy it as 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 them just being unaware of the fact that they're being so clever. But I do think that they eliminated a lot of the funny stuff out of it because you know, look at Butch Casting and Sundance Kid. It's almost like a comedy western. Right. So they probably wanted to make it a little more like Argo. Mm-hmm. I think that I t- think so. tone yeah. of Argo, sort of like funny, serious. Right. But it was dead serious. I mean, there are uh, funny moments, you know, like I've got a, a wife and a, you know, a, a wife and a house, and a dog and a cat or whatever. And there was funny scenes in it, but, mm-hmm. uh, but it's dead serious. I mean, I, lo- I really respect William Goldman, and they do, they do say that they maintained, they retained his structure, that the structure of his screenplay was really solid, and he had a great, Goldman had a great idea that he realized that the story was not about the Watergate burglary, and it wasn't about Nixon, and it wasn't about Watergate. The story was about the reporters and, and, and about journalism itself, and... Um, so he saw that, and he also just dropped the entire last half of the book, All the President's Men, because it was too, too much about the, the legalities and the court cases and the, and the aftermath and everything, and there was no reason to have that in the movie. Hmm. It's interesting because it's sneakily it's turned into sort of an upbeat story without without cheating the story by focusing on the reporters like that and, and sort of making heroes out of them. It sort of um, takes one of the darkest times in our history and and puts a little bit more of a positive spin on it because the good guys win. Right. That's right. Not only they weren't just good guys, they were they were the little guys. You know, they were two unknown reporters who 
were just rookies and who had to um, practically beg to even be uh, to keep the story. Once they realized, once the Washington Post editors realized what a big story it was, they almost took it away from them. They had to really work hard to hold on to it and to make it their own. And I think that that was one of the problems that Pakula and even Redford himself was thinking that maybe I'm miscasting myself in this movie because I'm more famous than Nixon. So how can I be? A, how can I play the little guy? in this movie they wanted to have more unknown actors uh i think that would have been a mistake obviously and and warner brothers wouldn't have stood for it like you said they by the time that they built these the set and that they pay they paid a half a million dollars for the rights to the book warner brothers needed to have star power to make to be sure that they were going to recoup their money investment. and it's also interesting as i think about it now because there's it's we're so um it's so easy to make the connection that if it were a political film, it would lean to the left. But the thing is, is Deep Throat, the real Deep Throat, and Woodward are both right-leaning. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to me that All the President's Men doesn't really take a partisan side at all. It's more like we're just, it doesn't even get to the tricky dick shit. I mean, it doesn't even get that close to that. It's just, this is how the story broke. This is how we found out that there was more to Watergate that... It goes all the way up to the top, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because that guy, what's his name? The real Deep Throat. Mark Felt, I think. Mark Felt. He was the deputy director. It turned out he was deputy director of the FBI, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a hard, He was, and he was a conservative. And that wasn't revealed until, I think, 2005, his actual identity. That's another thing that I found out is one thing that, uh, Alan J. Pakula wanted to be sure if they were going to cast an actual actor to play Deep Throat, they didn't want six months later for it to turn out to be um, uh, what Mitchell's wife, what was uh, the Attorney General's wife's name? I can't think of her. They, they, she was suspected that it might be her, or you know, they didn't want it to be a woman, or they didn't want it to be somebody who was not going to be looking like Hal Holbrook. So Pakula said, "You don't have to tell me who it is, but just have, you just confirm or deny that that Hal Holbrook can be believable as as the deep throat that only you know who it is." And Pakula sort of like didn't say no, so that he so Pakula realized that he had cast the role pretty well Hmm. yeah and it's interesting because the the main players let's say let's take out dustin hoffman for for a minute because he doesn't really have strong political convictions but you know uh, redford flaming liberal bernstein flaming liberal and then um uh, Woodward has emerged as like a really scary right winger, you know. Woodward, I'm so ashamed of how he's turned out. I mean, I'm just really embarrassed, and I feel I'm, I feel betrayed by him almost. Um, but was he ever not, you know, what he is today? I don't know. I think you're right. I think he always was that way. I did, but I think at the time, the only thing that mattered to them was the story, and and it, he wasn't he he wasn't on at, on any vendetta against Nixon. He was just trying to get to the bottom of the story. But I believe he's always been right wing. But he's as he's become more and more famous, he's become more and more of a spokesman for that um, point of view. And I'm just really disappointed to find that out about him. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that they didn't want to make a political movie, and they ended up not really making a political movie. It's true. I mean, it's really Mm -hmm. a movie that can be seen by either side, as opposed to a movie like Fair Game, which really is takes the left position. You know, it really does take Mm -hmm. a position and say, you know, this is what these terrible people did. All the President's Men doesn't really comment on it. It's also a great movie to watch 
anybody who wants to pretend to be a journalist or is a journalist because I think it really does speak to the sort of the you know the traditional role of, of what a journalist's job is you know and how or you what, get a story. Or was. Or was. <laughs> exactly was. That's and how you source true, it. Yeah. <clears throat> and how much trouble you can get in for getting something wrong. Like they go you know remember the when they want they need that one confirmation is H I think it's it's H Haldeman. Hmm. Uh, or Howard, maybe H. Hunt, one of the, one of the H. 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 Howard Hunt, or something like that. And they have to get that guy. And he says, he says, you know, just tell me if I'm right. Hang up, hang up. If I'm, you know, wrong or whatever. And that's how he gets his confirmation. And then, of course, the guy tells the grand jury that it's not true. It turned out to be true, but it was just a kind of a weird, you know, literal interpretation that he denied on the grand jury. And then one little slip up like that and, and that was it for the for, for Woodstein. You know, they they lost a lot of ground. And I think it's so interesting to watch that compared to how, you know, we receive and break news now. I mean it's one thing for Twitterers to get everything wrong as they did the night that the suspects were in Watertown, which was, you know, shameful. But, but but Twitter people on Twitter are amateurs and they're not they're not bound by any. Uh, they should maybe be a little more conscientious. But I mean, it's not as if um, they're they're swearing to it or that they're putting a, a publication in jeopardy or anything like that. You're only putting your own reputation on the line if you if you make a mistake and tweet. Right. And then, but the, the major news outlets that made the mistakes, all the way up to the New York Times, were making mistakes, breaking news, trying to beat Twitter, trying to catch up and be as fast as they are. You mm. know, could could. We could do a little well, you know, better with with that kind of all the president's men conservatism in terms of sourcing stories. There's just no time for it. It seems like you know. I've heard that people who were impressed by all the president's men and who were taken and 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 in awe of of Woodstein that um, that. Young people who watched them, who saw the movie in 1976, that applications to journalism school skyrocketed for the next two or three years, hmm. and that there was even a, a television show that was really popular for what was that television? Oh, I think it was Lou Grant because Mary Tyler Moore show ended, and so Lou Grant moved to L.A. and became editor of a newspaper, and that show Lou, Lou Grant was nominated for like 50 Emmys over the next. I'm not kidding, like 50 or 60 Emmys in Emmys over the next. Uh, five or six years. It was hugely popular. Journalism became like a hot thing to be involved in for the next five or six years. Um, so for my money, I think all the president's men should have won in 1976 Best Picture. It ended, In the end, it only won Supporting Actor, Art Direction, which it totally deserved, Best Sound, and Screenplay. And it lost Supporting Actress Jane Alexander, Best Director, Best Film Editing, and Best Picture. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I was so sure that I was going to be the only person who thought that all the presidents mentioned. I know that you love the movie, but I really thought that you and probably Craig, too, I probably, that you would both think that Network should have won Best Picture that year. Well, for me, Network bogs down in the third part of it. I hate to say that because I sound like a total fanboy film critic. I have a problem with the third act. <laughs> but the but it really does with the affair. I mean, I love Beatrice Strait and everything, and I, I really do love with a passion William Holden. And I like the way their marriage plays out. I love all those showy lines in that. You know, Aaron mm-hmm. Sorkin owes so much a debt to, to Patty Chayefsky. He took so much of his style. Um, but I still think that if network was really about what it really wants to be about, which is Howard Beale and Faye Dunaway and TV 
it it would have maybe deserved to win. But as it is, it's really it's really also just a melodrama. And another thing about Network that's always struck me, I really enjoy the movie. It's, it's, a, it's a trip from beginning to end. But Lumet, uh, or Lumet, Sidney Lumet, Lumet, whatever you pronounce his last name, has said outright that they'd intentionally began the movie in a very naturalistic style. They wanted to be really realistic, and they wanted their lighting to be realistic. They wanted the sets and the dialogue to be realistic. But the more the movie went on, the more outlandish it became until the last half hour 45 minutes it becomes almost surreal it is it's still remarkably weirdly crazily similar to reality tv that we have now but at the time it was almost way too over the top it became really too it it went too far i think at the very end the end yeah the end goes too far i think um interestingly uh this is a sad one of the saddest stories in oscar history um peter finch they were doing, they were, you know, the way that you um, campaigned for Oscar then was very similar to how you campaign now. And everybody, uh, you know, wanted to win that year. And they were, um, they were all campaigning really, really hard um, for the win. But nobody campaigned as hard as Peter Finch, who did 300 interviews. And mm. on his way to Good Morning America, he died of a heart attack. And he had said that he really, really wanted to win. He publicly said that he didn't. He thought it was a competition and it wasn't that great. But behind the scenes, he let it be known that he really wanted to win that Oscar. And he dropped out of a heart attack. It won anyway. But isn't that awful? Like he just he campaigned himself literally to death. Oh, so awful! And he's one of the really rare posthumous Oscars that was has ever been awarded because we've spoken before. I think we talked about it a lot when Heath Ledger was nominated. We wondered if the Academy would really want to give an Oscar to someone who wasn't going to be there to accept it because there there's so much about about uh, crowning someone king for the next year, you know, to let them be king and queen of, uh, of the Oscars. And if you if the person is gone, then then you lose that. So it's a really rare thing that he that he won at all. How many times had he been nominated before? Um, uh, uh, yeah, sure. I see now. He had been nominated for Sunday Bloody Sunday. He really wanted to win, and he had fought to be taken as lead. Um, they were going to nominate um, William Holden in the lead role, but they, but they, but he said, "No way, I'm the lead." Peter Howard Beale is the lead of that movie. Mm-hmm. He did 300 interviews between you know August and January or something like that. It was like they say it was an obsession with him the campaigning. So when he won, Patty Chayefsky went up on stage um, to accept the award as William Friedkin had dic- had you know predetermined in their rehearsals. And when he got up on stage, he said, well, there's someone else here who should really be accepting this award. Um, Mrs. Finch, are you here? And, like, he looked down the audience and, and they shined on the, you know, the camera went to the wife. And she got up and she scrambled to the stage and she, she gave this really moving speech. And after the Oscars were over, William Friedkin went up to Patty Chavsky and said, why would you do that? Why would you go off script? And he said, I don't know. It just seemed like a good idea. But later it came out that, that they had totally rehearsed it, that not only had Patty Chayefsky and Aletha Finch rehearsed it, but he actually wrote her speech for her. Well, that's great. Well, good for him, though. I mean, that's, 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 an, that's a great moment. 
You know what I wish about these old, when we hear about these, the old uh, Oscar nights, I wish that they would release those so that we could see them, like, you know, release them on DVD so we can actually watch the entire ceremony beginning to end. They're so protective of their clips and everything on YouTube. If you don't have uh, the verified or, or certified, you know, Oscar clip, they'll take it down right away. They're really, you know... Yeah. Stingy with those, with letting you see the old Oscar nights. They're very they conservative were. that way. They always have been very protective mm-hmm. of their copyrights and well, strange, but they're loosening up a little bit. I think over mm-hmm. time. You would think that there would be a little bit of a market for that in any way that they thought that they could make a little money off of it if they could sell the, the uh, you know, the uh, streaming or our DVD rights that they would be willing to do it. But, you know, as we've talked about before, or as we hear, the rumors that we hear, some of them are some pretty embarrassing evenings, too. And maybe, they're, maybe, they, maybe they've seen them and they know that they don't want the rest of us to see them. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. That Rob Lowe Snow White thing ought to be hidden from it forever. Another sad, really, for sure, the Snow White or whatever that was. Another, um, this is a little bit tangential. It goes way off track, but talking about Alan J. Pakula and and uh, and uh, all the president's men, he did one more great movie in his career. He had Sophie's Choice in 1982, which won Oscars for everybody. Mm. But his career was uh, peaked after that. But one, pro- his last project that he worked on. Um, you know, he, he he died in a tragic kind of freak accident on the Long Island Expressway. Uh, a car in front of him hit a pipe that was on the oh. on the expressway, and it went through the windshield and crashed through and, 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 you know, practically severed his head, I think. And that happened in 1998. So his, he, you know, he, had a, he died really tragically. Mm. But at the time that he was working, at the time that, that he died, he was working on a biography of Franklin... And Eleanor Roosevelt called um, uh, "No Ordinary Life," mm-hmm. and he had 50 pages of the screenplay. And he, it was going to be his big magnum opus, his epic historical film. And you know who wrote that? Doris Kearns Goodwin. No kidding! Wrote, yeah, wow. and she won a Pulitzer Prize for that book too. And he was going to adapt that into what he hoped would be a four-hour movie. Oh my god! That was his last movie that he was working on. Oh, it's so sad. I mean, that that reminds me of like Craig was talking about Kubrick earlier and Napoleon. It's like, you know, Lenin says, "Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans." It's just, it's always so sad to hear these stories of people who had just so many irons in the fire. They were so productive. You know, mm-hmm. and yet their hearts just couldn't take it, or whatever. A weird freak accident. Yeah, the other fate person just stepped in and, and prevents you from completing your dreams. Yeah, and the other person who who died for this Oscars was um, Bernard Herrmann, who died right after he finished the score for Taxi Driver. Wow! So that was his last score. Talking about score, and this is another little tidbit. You know, David Shire was nominated for doing a really spare. Uh, and really uh, quiet and and uh, score for the conversation. And I, I was in watching All the President's Men. There's no music at all for the first 30 minutes of that movie. The first time you hear any music at all is the scene in the Library of Congress where the overhead shot, you know, gets higher and higher and makes them look tiny with their little note cards and everything in the Library of Congress. There's a little piano score. Anyway, David, David Shire was nominated for those two movies, which are very similar in their sense of seven, 1970s paranoia and, and conspiracy-type thing. The, then David Shire's career just tanked. He did a lot of movies, but you would not recognize the titles of any of them until 
2007 when David Fincher hired David Shire to do the score for Zodiac, mm-hmm, which no took place in the 70s. And so that's why Fincher wanted him. Fincher wanted that 70s paranoid style of music. And so he turned back to David Shire. And oh, I think Shire was nominated maybe for that. That's exciting. Wow. I love movies where the score completely shifts toward the middle to end of the movie. I was just watching Body Heat, and that does it. Um, that score, it just kind of, in the beginning, it's this kind of, you know, loose saxophone. Mm-hmm. And then um, as the, the thing gets more serious, it starts to change in tone, and then it becomes really urgent, you know, halfway through the movie. And, and it's totally all done with the score. It's so beautiful. I love the way they do that. Right, and the way that uh, Bernard Herrmann's score in Taxi Driver almost has a, a has a Chinatown film noir kind of romanticism with that saxophone, even though that's like Death Cab in in, in New York, you know, driving through the fog, foggy streets of New York. Uh, it, the score is really lush, but the, the deeper they get into that movie, the score gets almost maniacal. It gets insanely like like clashing. You know symbols and stuff as, as his as he breaks down mentally. Yeah. So, um, Craig, which movie did you think should win there? Yeah, I would have gone with All the President's Men for sure. Well, I mean, I would have gone with Taxi Driver, but I don't think anybody really thought that that one had a chance because it was just way too dark. But of the ones that could have won, I would have gone with All the President's Men. I like Network, but it's not even really my favorite. Patty Shayevsky screenplay, like The Hospital, much better, which oh. is way more over the top consistently. What's hospital, the hospital was before all the pre- all, well, was before network, right? Yeah, 1971. Um, George C. Scott plays the uh, manically depressed uh, chief of a, a, a hospital where some, there's a there's there's a murderer sort of on the loose killing people. But it's, it's, a, it's a super super dark comedy. It's a satire wow. too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen. I don't know that I've ever seen it. I have to check that out. That's really it's interesting that you. Um, it, I, I prefer it. I mean, it's it's because it's not serious. It's it's not as serious in tone. Um, it's it's like you were saying with with network how it kind of gets crazier as it goes along. Uh, this is consistently crazy from the very start. Mm-hmm. It's just like mm-hmm. start to finish, just kind of kind of bad shit crazy. The hospital is a, a great uh, location for that kind of frantic stuff to be going on. Hospitals are so, so crazy, even in real life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's um, backtracking a little bit. It's interesting that you brought up um, Zodiac because I always think of all the president's men whenever I watch that film. But a lot, partly because of the whole newsroom thing, and even the newsroom set for Zodiac was very reminiscent to me of all the president's men. But it, it I would, I. I don't know if Fincher's on record talking about it, but I would be really surprised if, if uh, President's Men wasn't a huge influence on the film. In a lot of ways, it seems like um, the dark opposite of All the President's Men because it, it All the President's Men sort of suggests the idea that we can get to the bottom of things if we just try mm-hmm. hard enough. Mm-hmm. But to me, Zodiac has always been exactly the opposite, that no matter how hard you try, no matter how obsessed you are with finding the truth, you never can. It's always, mm. always elusive. Wow, it would make a great double feature, all the President's Men and Zodiac, because, like you said, the, the newspaper um, setting and the fact that um, there's a such a deep um, sense of paranoia going on, and that mm-hmm. the people who are doing the investigation actually fear for their own lives. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying that, I'm realizing that so much of Fincher's work is about that um, kind of dog chasing its own tail. 
where it, it just cycles through and there's no ever, you know, there's not a resolution. There's mm-hmm. not a resolution in seven or social network or the game. You know, they're all kind of this revolving nightmare. Fight club. Yeah. Talk about talk about uh, looping back on yourself and eating your own tail. Fight Club, the ending of Fight Club, one of the classic examples of that. Right. So, Rocky was. Do you guys, Craig? Do you remember Rocky when it first came out? I remember hearing that fucking song over and over and over and over again. Dun 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 dun. Was it was it that or was it gonna? Oh yeah, that is gonna fly now. You know, there's a handful of movies that I remember from my childhood that just really stick out, and I remember like my parents seeing it and talking about it, and and my parents' friends, you know, whenever they would get together for cards or whatever, talking about it, and along with I think The Exorcist and. And a couple of others that we've already actually talked about. Rocky was one of those ones that everybody just saw and, and yeah. everybody was talking about. And it was in everything. Like, it was parodied in everything. It was parodied in Saturday Night Live and on commercials. I mean, for a whole decade after that, you know, people would do the voice and they would do it, the, you know, running up the steps. It's so easy to parody because it practically verges on parody itself. It is so cliche to me. That's why it's so surprising to me to hear. I know that you're correct in what you say, that people were able to identify with the character and able to root for the the underdog and that kind of thing. But movies like Rocky and The Fighter and even The Wrestler, any kind of movie where people can't think of any other better way to make a living except hitting other people, I have no way to identify with that person. Well, I can I have no sympathy for anybody who chooses a life and million dollar baby. If your only choice in life <laughs> is to is to have a career where you hit people, I have no interest in you. Right. Well, let me read yeah. you what they say in the, this book about Rocky. It's pretty interesting. Um, after the movie screened they got of course standing ovations you know like Argo did it, it got really you know rousing applause it said UA heard the the applause as well and gave Stallone the biggest publicity build up since the old studio system days New York Magazine for example described his rags to riches story in a profile entitled he could be a contender Stallone was so ubiquitous by the time of the film's premiere in November, the New York Post said he had granted more interviews in recent months than any American short of Lillian Carter. Newsweek found the analogy apt and commented, just as Jimmy Carter prevailed by harking back to the old values of love and trust, Rocky resembles nothing so much as a throwback to the 1950s Cinderella hit Marty and to the 1930s brand of optimism known as Capricorn. Frank Capper himself said, I think it's the best picture in the last 10 years. It's got my vote for the Oscars all the way down the line. When I saw it, I said, boy, that's a picture I wish I had made. Most critics were equally captivated. Even John Simon said, Rocky is a pugnacious, charming, grimy, beautiful fairy tale. But the New York Times' Vince Canby was a holdout. Not since The Great Gatsby two years ago, wrote the critic, has any film come into town more absurdly oversold than Rocky. Wow. I'm, at least someone was a holdout. I, I'm, but, you know, when you make a movie that's involved with, with a sport like baseball, moneyball, or, or, or field of dreams, you have a built-in audience there. And your people are, 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 are fight fans or boxing fans, and they're going to turn out to see that movie because they like to watch the boxing. 
Uh, Raging Bull is an exception because Raging Bull, I think, showed um, it was an indictment of that sort of life. It showed that boxers are not heroes, but they're assholes. And they're doing something really stupid and crazy with their life, I think, is what, is what the message, one of the messages I get from Raging Bull. It's a waste of a life instead of a way to be a hero in life. But it's, but these boxing movies go way back in the Oscar history, too. Didn't Wallace Beery win for a Best Actor for a movie called The Champ? Like, when, like the second or third Oscars of all time, you know, the, back in the 1930s? Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, I think people liked Rocky because... It mirrored, like Argo, which was about, um, actually the artist Argo and the King's Speech, you can pretty much wrap them all up in the same bundle because they're very similar themed movies. But, mm. um, but, but, but Sylvester Stallone's own trajectory, just like Ben Affleck's own trajectory, was the story. Because it, it wasn't just, like they say, he was so ubiquitous. It wasn't just Rocky on screen that they loved. They, they, they meshed him with Sylvester Stallone himself. And it, it made it feel like it was a part of a real-life fairy tale, and people just ate it up, mm-hmm. just like they did Ben Affleck, who got snubbed and then was rescued. You know, that was so much a part of the success of Argo in the Oscar race that, you know, you couldn't really separate the two, just like at the time. And, and of course, we know Rocky. We know it became Rocky six and seven and eight. And, and not Sylvester only that, Stallone. we know what Sylvester Stallone became, too. We still have high hopes, I, I think, for Ben Affleck, and we, and we like him as a person, and we like that he's intelligent and thoughtful and is interested in doing uh, uh, important socially conscious, socially conscientious, uh, you know, things with his life but stallone has turned out not to have not to be such such a respectable or honorable type of person i don't think not anybody to look up to he never quite earned back that cred that he got with rocky because uh, he right. moved it in the wrong direction he sold that character out i thought he ruined mm-hmm. it he ruined everything that was great about it and his own persona, he did the same thing with the Rambo movies and, and the Expendables. And, you know, he just, just decided to take the wrong path. Yeah. It happens, you know, but he'll always have that best picture win. And, and you know, in fact, when he, um, when, when Rocky won, um, he, he ran up on stage. They, they made him go come up on stage and, um, you know, and, and hold the Oscar. And, and I think on the cover of Time magazine was just a picture of, Sylvester Stallone holding an Oscar, even though he never officially won one. Oh, is that right? Yeah. He didn't win screenplay, and he didn't win um, acting. He didn't produce it. He didn't produce the movie. He didn't direct it. But it wouldn't have been made without him. And so they all all knew that. Yeah, he was the story. I remember. I mean, I, I remember being... You know, hanging out with this friend of mine named Rain, who was just obsessed with Rocky and Sylvester Stallone. Obsessed. You know, all she did was talk in his voice, and he was really thought as the shit back then, and and <laughs> respectable. Not just he's a dumb boxer or whatever, but he had he had respect because he had written the screenplay. You know. Right. It's ironic a- that the same producers uh, would be nominated a few years later for. Raging Bull, which stands as one of the all-time most memorable Oscar snubs at losing to uh, to ordinary people, it's some 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 sort of karmic payback, I think, for them winning for Waraki, Erwin Winkler, and and Chartoff. Um, they would eventually lose for Raging Bull. Wow, that's so interesting. I never put I, that together before. Me either. Two boxing movies too. 
Wow. Two op- opposite sides of the same coin for sure, because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. one one is definitely not a <laughs> not a love story. Not a love story. No, no. I sucked your brother's cock. What do you want me to say? <laughs> <laughs> It's a different kind of love story. <laughs> yeah. I I like Rocky, though. I'm going to come right out and say I like it. I don't think it should have won. It shouldn't have even been nominated. And I, but I think its reputation suffers among us snobby types because it won. If it hadn't won, I think we more of us would, would maybe look back fondly on it. I mean, if it had just been allowed to remain a small, entertaining picture instead of being an Oscar winner, I think it holds up a lot better. Oh, it has plenty of fans, and I'm glad that you said. I'm glad that you came out and said that you like it. I, I was about to say that I hope I don't make a lot of enemies in our uh, among our listeners because I know that people, a lot of people, really, really like Rocky a lot. Would name it as one of their favorite movies of the '70s, and I've had I've had arguments on on the site before with people when I, when I disparage it all the time because people don't understand why I'm so hard on it. It's just not my type of movie. Like I said, I don't like movies where people are just hitting each other in the face all the time. That's not my thing. I don't like that. Yeah. I mean, I was won over by it. I think that um, I, I reevaluate movies now. I used to be, when I first started my site, and actually gained a lot of readers because of my um, ongoing anger about so-called Oscar injustices. And I hate to think that I've gone soft, but I really have, because I don't think that it was such a hor- horrible thing that um, that How Green Was My Valley beat Citizen Kane. And I don't think it's that big of a deal that Ram- um not rambo but <laughs> rocky beat um uh you know all the president's men in network and and the reason is not because the movies themselves have gained in in um you know that i've liked them better in retrospect although that's true about how green was my valley but it's more about understanding who the academy are who these people are and and forgiving them their their not weaknesses, but their tastes. You know, it's kind of like, you know, that's the kind of movie my grandma likes. Okay. Another thing, too, I think living through it, you get so passionately and emotionally involved with a movie that you think deserves more to win that it's almost like your current boyfriend or something that you that you and you and you want to you want to stick up for it and you're mad you're angry at the movie that 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 defeats it i i feel that way anyway but looking back 20 15 or 30 years ago you see that the movies that you love from those years have prevailed and they're okay all the president's men and and taxi driver and a network have not uh lost any esteem for the fact that they lost the Oscar, it doesn't yeah. matter whether they won the Oscar. And or not. Citizen Kane remains among the you know the best film ever made, if not the mm-hmm. second best film ever made by Sight and Sound. Um, I see. The thing is, where my anger resides now is 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 in in recent years where they should know better yeah, than to just fall into these same old patterns of these weird retro throwback movies that we've seen for the last three wins you know these really sentimental rocky like movies that have won that's the part that makes me mad it's like i can forgive the past but i really want to see them i really want to see the oscars evolve in a different direction i would love to see that in my lifetime i don't know if i ever will but the way things are looking it's moving in the wrong direction What's sad is I don't think any of those three movies that you're thinking of are even half as good as Rocky was. <laughs> no. You know why? Because Rocky, Rocky's ending was not a feel-good ending, unlike Argo and... Argo and King's Speech and The Artist are, are you know, okay, I'm going to say they're great movies for what they are. 
Um, but they completely sell out the happy ending situation. Like they just resolve things way too easily with no complexity at all. Argo has a tiny bit of complexity. It brings up a little bit of Iraq, which I thought was, was smart. Um, the way that, that it ends, but, um, but the King's speech, forget it. It's happy ending. And, and the artist it's completely happy ending, of course, joyously. So it is what it is. But, um, but Rocky had a complex ending, you know. Yeah, it was never calculated to be an Oscar picture. I think there wasn't you go. It? it wasn't. It just beca- it, it it was made to be the movie that it was, and it just happened to catch people's imagination. That's the so thing. then they spun the narrative to turn it into an Oscar picture. But it wasn't. The movies now are they're putting yeah. the Oscar cart before the horse, mm-hmm. and they're, and they're it's trying working. to make Oscars. It's working. It didn't used to work. The way right. the Oscars kind of smelled a rat before, you know, and they and they wouldn't give it to a movie they thought was the quote-unquote Oscar movie. And they would give it to the kind of instant hit. And they, these movies are designed to be Oscar pictures but but made dressed up to look like they're just these Under, out of underdogs. Nowhere. John Adelson or the producer of Rocky, one of those guys, said that they they imagined this to be like a double a double feature at a drive-in. Like they never thought it would be a prestige pick. Mm-hmm. You know, probably in their wildest dreams, they would think that it was going to win awards. You know. Um, do you, do you think I, I'm, I look at percentages? I never think that any movie wins by a landslide. I always think that it, I like to think that it's always really close between the winners and losers. That there's there are factions um, every year who are just as disappointed that their movie loses as we are. There are people who are heartbroken that Lincoln didn't win. There are people that are heart, who are heartbroken that Life of Pi didn't win this year. And I like to think that it's sometimes really close that there there's a great amount of support within the academy that nobody just turns their back on Lincoln and Life of Pi. That doesn't happen. And I like to I think that it happens every year. And then in years when you have so many great movies, when you have Network and all the President's Men and Taxi Driver, you have a really um, more intellectual type of academy um, member whose 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 affections are split three different ways, and so when that happens, you end up with the third of the academy who have sort of like, I would say I have to say middle brow middle brow taste who who are left over, and that's how those movies prevail. Yeah, that's right. This is one of those three movie years, Rocky, and and last year was one as well. You're right, and. And um, the other one was on Golden Pond, Reds, and Chariots of Fire. And in all three instances, the kind of easy favorite beat the more you know difficult films. However, in recent times, I'll say that winning an Oscar for Best Picture is almost the worst thing that can happen to a movie. It's it's almost like it wins the battle, but it loses the war because it, it immediately diminishes it. I don't know why, but it does. Well, part of it is the online backlash, don't you think? You didn't. Maybe there was a backlash in, uh, among individuals and among friends and among uh, groups of people who who would have who would who would talk who would talk trash about the Oscar winner. But now, when you talk trash about a movie, uh, uh, ten million people hear what you're saying. Yeah, on Twitter, it's either that or it's that the Academy's taste has become so devalued over the years that to even win an Oscar is to mean that you appeal to that low of, of taste, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but it seems like Lincoln is already um, looking better and it's not even been a few months, but, but, you know, Steven Spielberg's being celebrated. Well, so is Ben Affleck to his credit, you know, he's being celebrated, but I don't know. We'll have to just see how it goes in five years, 10 years time. 
what people think of these movies that we're living through right now. I mean, I've been doing this long enough, so now I'm on my 15th year that I can remember years like A Beautiful Mind versus um, Fellowship of the Ring, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon versus Gladiator. Um, you know, it just so happened that in the height of of doing this, that, that a lot of great movies did happen to win, like Hurt Locker and Departed and No Country for Old Men and Slumdog Millionaire. Those were you know, good movies. So there wasn't so, a lot to complain about, but now we're entering the phase of there's a lot to complain about. So I don't mm-hmm. know. We'll have to wait five years to, to look back on these times to see what, how they, how these films stand up. And I think there's a pendulum swing too. There's, there's, there are the factions within the Academy who, who vie for dominance and, and, and they, they almost get frustrated that their, that their type, that their favorite type of movie isn't winning. And so they push harder to make sure that the next time that kind of movie comes around, that they're going to make sure that it wins. And it's a pendulum swing that goes, the pendulum swings back and forth between the types of movies that win. And it's in, it's in cycles. I think it comes in cycles. I just, as a side note, I just saw a headline that says Rocky, the musical is heading to Broadway. Ugh. So there you go. It's finally been raped in its last available hole, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't even know where they found it. <laughs> When you were talking about when you first started uh, with Oscar Watch, and I'm sure that you felt uh, had a lot of passionate feelings about, I know that because you've talked about the year with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Traffic, and Gladiator. Do you find as the the years pass that that you're able to be more dispassionate and look look at it more objectively the way that we're looking at 1976 tonight? You mean just because I had my nineteenth nervous breakdown last year? You mean that way? <laughs> Maybe just just just. <laughs> I, I would just like to no, think. No, I, I wish that, 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 that it stops stinging. I wish. Listen, it'll never hurt as bad as it did um, when Crash beat Brokeback Mountain. It'll never hurt mm-hmm. that bad. That was the worst I think it's ever gotten. Second to that would be Social Network and King's Speech, and then third would be Lincoln and. Um, Argo. I think if Argo was a worse movie, it would be harder. But it's not. It's you know, it's a, it's a. I can understand why it won. It's a total crowd pleaser. I don't think it's a great film. It's a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but Crash. Right. So uh-huh. that was hard that year, and I didn't think that um, I would ever get over it. But the thing, the difference between Crash and every other year was that everybody noticed that year and the academy did change and then the next year the departed won and the next year no country won and then slumdog millionaire won and then hurt locker won and then whoosh it flipped so we kind of had our hopes up we really thought that there had been a sea change the tide had turned and there was going to be another another golden era of of the oscars but even when we look back now at the the golden era of the 70s we have talked we realized we discovered that it really only lasts for about five years well what happened to the oscar race was weinstein um he figured out a way to kind of bypass the usual um, trajectory of a movie with the King's Speech. What he did with that movie was he kind of rewrote the rules of how the Oscars were going. It no longer mattered what the critics thought, obviously, because the social network had won every single critic award. What mattered more was that he had this likable team of people and he was having these parties on the ground and he was appealing to Academy members on the ground and he was um, entertaining them and delighting them and charming them with these wonderful people and that mattered a lot more and they stopped paying attention to what was being written and what was being said the other thing that happened was that we've had 
you know, triple, quadruple the number of critics and critics' awards. So I think that kind of reached its maximum. And I think that at that point, the Oscar voters just stopped listening to the critics and just said, you know what? Fuck it. There's too many of them. They don't matter anymore. We're going to do what we want. And they went rogue like Sarah Palin. (laughs) (laughs) That's my weird theory of it anyway. That's how I see it. And I feel like after Weinstein did that, he did it again with the artist. It was the same kind of thing, although the artist was slightly different because it wasn't a coup like the King's Speech was, which was an underground coup. Um, The artist was just a movie everybody liked from Cannes on. There was never any other movie. And then um, Argo kind of followed the same sort of thing as the King's Speech. It sort of flew under the radar. Um, it stayed in the background until, you know, kind of the end there. And likable guy, like charming team, on the ground campaigning, Ben Affleck everywhere, talking to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't be any nicer. You know, the writer was nice. Everybody on that movie. George Clooney's a fucking producer, charming. I mean, come on. So... That was like and a we, king's speech to me. And we feel like that Ben Affleck, I really have, I know that we all have expectations that Ben Affleck will, will deliver on his promise that he's not going to be a John G. Avildsen. <laughs> he's not, he's not, his next movie is not going to be Karate Kid 3. No, I think he's a good filmmaker. I really do. Yeah. So That's another great thing about 1976 is that when you look, we do this every, every episode. We talk about all of the great movies that, that were made that year. When you look at the top five or six or seven movies of 1976, they were almost all nominated for Best Picture. You've got Taxi Driver, All the President's Men, Network. I wouldn't include Rocky. Um, but then beyond that, what have you got? You have... Um, Carrie, the outlaw Josie Wales, you have Bound for Glory, which, you know, my buddy, my pal Hal Ashby, I'm so happy to see that the clout that he got from Shampoo was able to get him uh, the the um, a free reign to make to do whatever he wanted to do with Bound for Glory. And he he maintained that that clout for another couple of years to make coming home and being there. So really, the Oscar does it did benefit Hal Ashby. The the Oscar attention that the shampoo got really helped his career for the next five years. Yeah, and I think that if they had nine nominees, then you mm-hmm. Seven Beauties would have been nominated. Carrie would have been nominated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of these fringe films would have gotten in for Best Picture. I think Rocky obviously still would have won, but. Um, but you know, you had such great roles. For, needless to say, yet again, what how many great roles there were for women? Just Carrie alone is is almost all women. Um, you know, woman heroine, woman villain, and then you even had Bugsy Malone that year. Mm-hmm. So Bugsy Malone had Jodie Foster in it, right? So you had Bugsy Malone, Jodie Foster, and Bugsy Malone, and in uh, Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. Right. Talk about a crazy year for her. And who else would have had a double? Oh, uh, Dustin Hoffman had uh, all the President's Men and Marathon Man. And which Marathon, Marathon Man is God. almost like a is almost on the level of of of, of second tier Hitchcock for me. It's so crazy how even the the second tier and third tier movies that didn't get in the Best Picture race are still better than everything else today. <laughs> no, like... Marathon Man is a really gripping thriller. I mean, it is absolutely. It makes no sense when you try to analyze the plot, but it doesn't matter. Neither did a lot of Hitchcock movies. But abs- as far as the performances go, and as far as as uh, the actual suspense and the thrills, it, it's hard to beat a, a Marathon Man. Is it safe? 
Um, so that you know that is this is another chapter in our in our ongoing look at the 70s and and how the oscar races change and and i'm gonna make i'm gonna posit the theory that rocky changed things that the turning point was rocky i will say i'm I'm not i'm not sure if next year is when superman was made i believe that it is i believe superman did come out in 1977 that is another thing that changed the the way that hollywood works because it was the beginning of the superhero era when Superman made such a big splash and made so much money. That's probably another uh, uh, financial effect that that was felt throughout Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, and for me, I'm going to say when Rocky won, it was the end of um, pretty much the end. I mean, I think in two years, the deer hunter wins, you know, and that movie is um, pretty dark for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the very end of the 70s. And from then on, it's it's pretty much movies like Rocky winning again and again and again. Another thing that happened, I think we'll, we'll get into it more for, and then when we talk about the latter years of the 70s. I think something that happened in, with a lot of these uh, these uh, uh, rebels uh, like Coppola and uh, and uh, Cimino uh, and even even Schlesinger with. Uh, because Dave Locus was kind of a disaster financially, uh, these directors that had been given a lot of power to do whatever they wanted um, f- almost flamed out by getting too extravagant. Coppola almost did it with Apocalypse Now, although he he managed to, to rescue it. Finally, it was uh, it was on the verge of disaster. And so I think these directors were. I think studios started to think that maybe we need to to rein these guys in. Mm, I think so, too. I also think that, you know, it's always a case of money talks. You know, that's where all the power lies. And pretty soon we're going to be getting into the era of the Tom Hanks and the Julia Roberts and the Tom Cruise and the really hardcore $20 million paydays. And that really did change the power dynamic in Hollywood and it influenced what kind of movies got made. After the, you know, the 60s and 70s was kind of the end of the studio system, the studios controlling the stars and really controlling the Oscars, and things kind of split wide open. Mm. And you can really see the effect one person can have on the Oscar race, like somebody like Jack Nicholson or Robert Redford or even Meryl Streep um, or uh, Sally Field, you know, certain people who, you know, who become so popular and are smart about the projects that they pick that they, they, they themselves and they, they alone can, can shift the course of the Oscar race and take them out, you know, and you've got nobody to replace them. There was nobody to replace Lena Wertmuller. She was a one of a kind and she was really ballsy. Um, and she made these kind of crazy movies that nobody else made. And, and she got noticed for that. You know, she didn't, it wasn't like after her every year, there was a movie directed by a woman that people paid attention to. She was a free thinker. She wasn't American, you know, but she didn't make quote unquote woman's movies. She made her own kind of crazy genre. Right. Interesting that she's, many movies. she was a, a disciple of Fellini, right? I, I think I've read that. I'll have to double check if it's, if it's not correct and they'll have to cut that out. But I believe that, that Fellini was her mentor. Hmm. I just think it's interesting to see that the certain people like Harvey Weinstein or George Clooney, you know, certain people who have huge impacts on the Oscar race. But they become almost an industry 
of the of the they become a brand they're, they're a brand name they're a brand name and they're the reason that people go instead of going to see a coppola movie you go to see a, a julia roberts movie right right and then that changed because now julia roberts name means squat to box mm-hmm. office same with tom hanks i think it's so interesting that someone like jane fonda is you know she was going to get the part in um network and she didn't get it, and she... Well, you know why? I wish we had brought that up, because you know what happened. You know, she had won the Oscar for Clute at, at, who, because uh, Pakula, again, brought her back from almost the, the the point of ridicule because she had starred in that movie Barbarella, and she was almost like a, a, a joke. But he brought, he redeemed her reputation. But then she went to Vietnam and made the mistake of posing for that photograph where she's sitting on a on an anti-aircraft gun in North Vietnam. And she became Hanoi Jane, and she was box office poison. Oh, wow. And so she had to re-redeem herself in order to reclaim her status. She had to do a Vietnam movie, which Hal Ashby directed, which was Coming Home, in order to, 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 to save herself because she had just about destroyed her career with that gaffe. And she wins with Coming Home, doesn't she? Yeah, Probably. I think she did. You're right. So she, um, she is still around here in her 70s she's gone through life decades and decades of hollywood and of regular life and here she is you know in her 70s you know in still in great shape with vitality and energy and, and even on twitter you know I mean, she's amazing mm-hmm. to me that she's so you know that she's still going she's, she's still controversial though too even even today i mean it, what isn't she in, uh, rumored for like playing nancy reagan or something and everybody was all up in arms about that Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, the, the conservatives never forget something like that Hanoi, Hanoi right. Jane thing. Right. They'll never forgive her for that. Some people will never, ever forgive her for that. <laughs> Although she claimed that she didn't even realize that that's what she was sitting on. And she didn't realize how that photograph was going to look. Um, she was just exhausted. She was making a goodwill tour, really, because she all she wanted was the war to end, like everybody else. But she just made had a really bad photo op. Right. But like you said, good for her because she has gone through so many ups and downs and and her reputation has tanked and soared over and over. And and then she's in this Sorkin thing now on HBO, right? I wish there was more of her in that. I hope he brings her back. If I can stand to watch that stupid show, I'll try again. (laughs) But, you know, um, uh, Robert Redford just did a, a Discovery documentary on all the president's men, right? Uh, it, that's on Discovery. I, I haven't seen it, but I heard. I think so, and I think Rachel Maddow might be, might be, might speak, might narrate part of that or something. Yeah. I mean, I was shocked when I listened because I was going to try to figure out where I had heard this, where I'd heard that thing about the, the dioptic lens and everything. I know that I had read this stuff someplace, and I knew that I had read the thing about how Goldman and Redford had a falling out, and I wanted to source it. And so I thought, well, I must have heard that on the DVD commentary track. And so I listened to the commentary track, and for the first 45 minutes, 45 minutes, he doesn't even mention William Goldman as being a participant in the movie at all. It's like he deliberately overlooks mentioning him. So that's weird, isn't it? It is weird. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That is so strange. It's like he's offended by the fact that he didn't. He and Pakula didn't get the credit they deserve for re, for reworking the screenplay. Right. I know it's very mm-hmm. strange, but I like it that they're that they are, um, you know, revisiting all the president's men as a film, 
you know, I, I've always thought that it deserved more attention than it's gotten over the years. I have always thought that it, as a film, as a work of art, it deserved more. It was always kind of looked at as a a documenting of history, but I think as a mm-hmm. work of art, to me, it's just a flawless movie that I've seen countless times. It's one of those movies that I put on to just have in the background when I work. I've seen it me so too. many times. When I watched it again, I, 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 the way that it begins with that blank white screen and, and then that, that, that crashing of the typewriter key, I got a catch in my throat when I saw that because that's so stunning to open a movie like that, to yeah. show the power of the typed word on a page just hammering. Right. And you know what it's about. It's like a cannon going off or something. And the end, like, too. It ends that way. Yeah, it's this incredibly well done. Like it is a work of art, and it's it's amazing that it, that it would that um, it wasn't more appreciated at the time. That it's taken so long for it to be appreciated. It reminds me of Lincoln a little bit in the way that it's not an action-packed story, but action comes through the words and the way the screenplay just crackles. Just hearing people talk and and the things that they say are just sharp and smart and and dynamic. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have to listen to it. You don't. Your attention. Your attention is not. It doesn't capture your attention with action set pieces. It it it, catch, it captures your attention by the intelligence behind it. You know, Pakula was a. He went to Yale. He was a theater major at Yale. So Pakula is a really really smart guy. I think he's one of the most underrated directors of the seventies, probably. So. And that movie especially. Um, mm-hmm. I have to also say because it's my job to keep saying it like a broken record, but look at how well rounded the female parts are in All the President's Men, and look at Adrian in Rocky. I mean, mm-hmm. compare Adrian and Rocky to Jennifer Lawrence in Silver Linings Playbook, for instance, two mm-hmm. female characters, and look at how well-drawn one is compared to the other, uh, just as a written character. But in All the President's Men, you have Jane Alexander, Jane Alexander's sister. You have the various people that they meet at the doorway to try to talk to, you know, that one woman who's liberal and then the other one who's not, you know, um, she kind of dresses them down for having no respect. And then you have mm-hmm. the different journalists that they meet. You know, one mm-hmm. is had gone out with that guy and, you know, she doesn't want to talk about him. And, you know, uh, it's just to me so interesting that all of them have are, are fully fleshed out. They have small parts, but they're so interestingly written, these characters. And for a reason, too, for a dramatic purpose, because I believe that I have read that Pakula and Redford, when they were talking about the fact that they were aware that people across the country were going to view, some people were going to view the Washington Post reporters as busybodies and people who brought down Nixon, and so they weren't going to be um, identifying with the reporter, so they needed someone else to identify with. And so who they created in the script for them to identify with were the people they were pestering. Hmm. And they were women. They were often women, and they were they were women who they were uh, manipulating. And so they wanted the audience who wasn't who weren't going to be able to identify with Woodstein. They wanted them to identify with the women who were being almost tormented by Woodstein. <laughs> but even that one um, receptionist, uh, Mr. Bernstein, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> no. she's such a great character. She's totally out of the blue, and yet what a great you know. They're none of them throwaways. And you know another thing too about Jason Robards. I think that his casting was so brilliant, and they talked about like the fact that they were aware of the fact that they were they had they were casting major movie stars in the roles of these two unknown reporters. And so, who can you find to be their boss? Who can be? Believable as someone who can boss around Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. And so he had to find someone who was legendary enough so that Redford and Hoffman actually looked upon him with genuine awe. 
because he because of what he had done earlier in his career and and uh jason robart's career was almost had almost ended because he was in a really bad car accident and he, his leading man days were over because he had been really badly scarred he, they thought his career was over because of his facial scars and everything but after all the president's men he never had trouble finding another job again you know it rejuvenated his career no kidding yeah i always thought it was too small of a part um yeah you want more of him Mm. Yeah, and that's, I thought that I thought it's strange that he won because he beat, for instance, Laurence Olivier in Marathon Man. Mm. Um, really, that's I think Burgess Meredith was probably the favorite to win that, um, mm-hmm. and I think Jason Robards was a bit of a surprise because it was a small part. But I'm going to bet that it he won for two reasons. One, it was one of those years where they w- wanted to split up all the awards. The network took a lot of the awards. So did all the president's men, and, and they split it with Rocky, kind of like this last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think that Jason Robards is, is um, play, playing Ben Bradley. Right, who was a hero in his own right and really well-known. He was famous. He was a famous personality of his own. And I do think, too, maybe there might have been a little bit of a sympathy thing going on for Jason Robards, too. People who thought, who liked him earlier in his career and thought, well, poor guy, he's been in this car accident, he's disfigured, his career is over. And to see him make a comeback like that, that's a pretty uh, um, uh, impactful story. And he was an incredibly well-respected theater actor also. I mean, he was, Mm -hmm. you know, he was like the Eugene O'Neill guy. Right. Redford and, and Robards had, had starred together on a TV production of Iceman Cometh, and Robards had, had really helped Redford. He'd given him a lot of support back then, and Redford repaid the favor hmm. in casting him. Could you know more about this than I do, and I read the Inside Oscar chapter. <laughs> this is all stuff I picked up. <laughs> I thought that this was going to be on the on the commentary track, and I and I and then I thought that I must have picked it up in a magazine article someplace. But it turns out I've got a book around here someplace that I was able to to, to pinpoint where I found a lot of this information. And it's I should get get you this book because there are two full and complete chapters in this book that are fascinating about all the president's mm-hmm. men. Yeah. And um, do you think we gave Taxi Driver the short shrift when we were talking about it? Well, we could have split this whole podcast up into three and just spent one episode on on Taxi Driver, one episode on All the President's Men, you know. And, uh, I'm su- I was surprised that we launched into talking about Taxi Driver first off, right off the bat. And it kind of stunned me because I wasn't really prepared for it. But I think we gave it, we cut, since we talked about it first, I think that, that we gave it a lot of prominence. Yeah. Well, I'll listen back to it. Hopefully it'll be okay and worthy of, of such a great Oscar year. Um, okay, guys, I think it's time. We could all go to sleep now. Back mm-hmm. to Good night, sleep. everybody. Good night, Craig. Thanks for chit-chatting, you guys. Okay, everybody rest well, and I'll see you tomorrow. Okay. You Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to episode 28 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And the bumper music today was Partners in Crime by Lucinda Williams and The Whole, Laura Stevenson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>